So Lord, I pray once again that we might be led to Jesus through this study and through the scriptures and be given the wisdom to live our lives in light of that relationship. So God, thank you. Guide us in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, so we're jumping in. Today is all about the Bible being unified literature. It is a unified story. And so um, that's, that's where we're at. We're just jumping in. What does unified mean? Unified in composition and content, unified in collection and collaboration. Um, last week, we briefly discussed that the Bible is the result of, you know, 35 plus hundred years, the Bible that you have today, but the Bible being written was over the course of about 1600 years with the spirit inspiring 40 plus people, you know, 40 plus authors to write these various uh, texts within different cultures, languages, settings, um, literary styles throughout the whole thing. Like there's a whole lot of diversity in the Bible over a very diverse amount of time and um, it, it's really big. The fact is that the Bible has many authors, literary styles, themes, yet in all of this time, culture, language, and more, the Bible is unified in its work. It's unified in its story. It's telling one story. There's one main unified message throughout, yet it can reach all aspects of diversity and of, uh, of life and of differences and all that kind of stuff. So today I want to allow the Bible to kind of identify what that story is, to start practicing reading the Bible as a unified story, to see the Bible as, as unified in composition and in content. So first, what do I mean by unified? We're on page one of the handout. Unity is the state of being undivided, having oneness, a condition of harmony. Um, the idea behind the Bible being unified is that if, if, it's, God wor- if it's God's word, God's scripture, if, it, if it's part of his identity, because he was part, in, you know, inspiring it and all that kind of stuff, then it should also reflect who he is. It should also be um, like him. And central to the faith of Israel and central to our faith as well was this idea that God is one. And I have a scripture there, Deuteronomy 6, 4, um, and it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And if you actually look at the Hebrew of it, it says, Yahweh, our God, Yahweh, one. Like it doesn't even have those uh, ises in there, but it's kind of given. That, that our God is one God. In a, and even though he is, has this triune presence, this Trinity idea of the way he works with us and in this world and all that, it's one God. Um, and, and this is, you know, a, a big thing. He doesn't change. He's consistent. He's faithful. Um, and unending, there is no division in him. So he meets all this, the, the standards of this definition of unity. Therefore, if the Bible, once again, is from him, it should also reflect him. The Bible is also unified as well. It is one, um, even though there's so much diversity. This is also the way he created us to be with him, to be one with him, in union with him as his image bearers. You know, human's history is this story of of disruption to that union with God, this division that we've created with him, this divide um, that we've caused. And so, you know, whether it's marriage, family, you know, community or any of that, it's disrupted. But Jesus restores us back into this unity with God, to this union, this this oneness with him. Jesus in John 17 even prayed that we might be one even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. We are also meant to be one together as, as a witness to the world of who God is. So the Bible is the same thing. It is one as a witness to everybody else who God is. Um, so its story, the way it's designed, it's written, it reflects all of who God is, his design, um, and, and, and fulfilling this definition. It, it's undivided. It has a oneness to it and works together in, part, uh, in, in, in its parts. It works with all of its parts in harmony, is what I'm trying to say. So why is that important? 
when we look at the Bible being unified, it's important because it shows the intentionality of every book. It all ties together. It all connects. There's so much intentionality in every page of Scripture. Um, it also shows, um, again, how amazing the human and divine partnership is. If God took so much you know, intentionality to the Bible, yet he did that through a human partnership, wow, that's just crazy that God was able to preserve such a unified text over such a long amount of time through so many different people. Um, it, it's just crazy. Uh, one of the, the sessions that we're going to do is is ancient literature, and I've been writing that one this week, and, and I, I was cracking up, and I'm going to need y'all's help when we get there. But things that are different now that we say than they were then, or things that you used to say that <laughs> I had no clue what you're saying because I didn't grow up in your culture. But even through all of that, God has uh, allowed this text, these scriptures, to be unified, to communicate one thing to everybody, to all people of all nations. Um, so it helps us uh, see those things, but also when we see the Bible is unified, it helps us uh, keep, keep us from making the Bible say something that we want it to say. You know, we'll take a story and be like, oh, this is a great life lesson for us, but the author never like, that wasn't his intention when he wrote that. That's not the interpretation of that scripture. That might be an application, but there's one interpretation. There's an interpretation that the author intended. Um, and so when we're tracking the, the union, the unity of the Bible, it keeps us from just pulling something and making it say something that we want it to say, if that makes sense. So here's an example. Think about movies today. And how, how many of y'all are like movies people? not not many i've figured that with y'all y'all are weird i'm just kidding no (laughs) i'm probably the weird one right no but movies today and you can think books as well storybooks and and series and stuff like that but uh you have some movies today that regardless of how many they there are they tell a unified story um they work together they build off one another and then there's other movies that don't they're kind of intention even though they're the same group same series or whatever they they kind of butt heads a little bit um for example i have harry potter up here because harry potter is an eight movie series out of seven books is that right is that okay i'm not a harry potter expert stormy is there you'll see my expert in a second but um over the course of these eight movies there's four directors four different directors yet when you watch it it makes sense you feel like they connect. You feel like they're unified. You feel like they're tracking. Even though there's four different people that created these movies. The reason is, is because they were following one author. You know, one person that wrote this story and they were following that blueprint. And there's a few things that are different from the books. There always is when it comes to movies. But it's a unified whole. Now, Star Wars, which is by far my favorite movies of all time. Um, well, some of them. And we'll get there. Star Wars is the result of, uh, there's nine different movies. You had the original three, and if you've watched Star Wars or tracked it, it's really confusing because the first one is actually the fourth one. It's just really confusing. But anyway, so you have the original three, which are in the middle, written by one guy, directed by one guy, and then you have three that came right before that, or in timeline-wise, but they were made later. See, complicated. But it was also written by the same dude. Um, he did things a little bit different that made people a little upset, but the story tracks in those six. It's a unified story. Then came three more in more recent history over the last 10 years. It's not the same director anymore, okay? So we have six. All right, the seventh movie, this director was like, okay, I'm so excited to do a Star Wars movie. It's going to be great, but I don't want to do anything like the other guy. I want to go about it differently than him. And so you're watching it, and you're like, okay, um, there's a little bit of difference here. There's a little bit of tension. Okay, what, that, I, that's okay. I can track with that. Move to movie eight. So you have the original six director. You have seven director. Oh, now we have another director. Okay? We've seen this work before. Harry Potter got it right. Um, well, This guy didn't want to do what the original guy did, but he also didn't want to track with the story that the seventh movie, so he took it a whole different direction. You're like, whoa, that was just a big turn, like that big turn, like, okay, 
I love these. I'll I'll keep tracking. I'll keep tracking. But man, you just you just went a completely different way. I like the story, stuff like that. Okay, movie number nine. Okay, we come back to the director of movie seven. Different from this guy and this guy. And he's like, okay, you tried to change my story, so now I'm going to try to change it back. And it just, it just ends up with this story with the, all these you know, zigzags, and you're like, what is going on? I thought we were going this way, but you don't want to go this way. So you made, even though there was one author to Star Wars, these directors took it and it made a very diverse but also divided movie. And it's also divided the fans of Star Wars. You know, you only like these movies now. You used to hate these three, but they've messed up these so bad, I actually like them now. You know, stuff like that. So that's the risk that God took when he let people partner with him in the writing of Scripture. Because we always have these agendas on our hearts and on our minds, and we try to take things and run with it one way, when God's like, no, this is the direction we're going. Yet even through people who tend to do this, God was able to bring out a unified story, a unified scripture in its creation and its formation. God worked with people. People worked in obedience and faithfulness to him um, and, and unified the Bible in ways that just will blow our minds. Um, that's just truly amazing. They set aside their agendas. They followed, followed one author. Think about it this way, the four gospels. You know, you have four different stories of Jesus coming to earth, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. You line those stories up, and there's going to be some differences. I was telling the youth one time, I don't even remember what story it was at this point, but, you know, it says, yeah, Jesus was going to Jericho, I think, and then he did this. And then a different gospel says, as Jesus was coming from Jericho, he did this. There's a little bit of conflict there. But the stories, when you take the whole, they're unified. They're telling of one Savior, one man, who came from heaven to earth to show the way that we might believe in him through his death, his resurrection. It's a unified story, even though there's four different writers. Um, But the whole Bible is like this. The whole Bible is like this. So how? How is the Bible unified? We're moving on to page two of the handout. Um, And I want to talk about how it's unified in its composition first. This might sound like a boring word, because it is. <laughs> composition. The way it's structured and designed. But again, as we see the way it's structured and designed, that's unified. It's going to show us so much more how the content is unified. So the unified part of the Bible, the composition, is unified. Um, and so I want to just throw out something to make you stress a little bit. Um, what do you think of the, the phrase that the Bible had editors? Editors. And I'm not talking about your Bibles these days, but go through and catch spelling mistakes, or even the scrolls, the scribes. But the Bibles, the original writings had editors. I know in some discussion I've had, that makes people be like, whoa, what are you trying to say? Now, I'm, we're going to talk afterward. No. Um, so, so back up with me real quick. You know, originally Bibles were written on these scrolls. It, it, you know, not, there was no books yet. There was no chapters, no numbers. Um, it's written on scrolls over a great period of time. It was written to be read aloud, to be heard. Um, so in, how did they know what order to read them in? What order? There was no table of contents. They didn't have this, okay, this is number one, number two, number, no. They just had these scrolls thrown out there. Um, but how do you think they would have known the order? See, there's these little things that are written within these repeated words and these patterns that would, when you heard it, it would kind of connect the dots for you. In your mind, it would connect um, this scroll and this scroll together. And so I want to look at these. You know, one of these seams is between uh, Genesis and Exodus. Two different scrolls, and, and it's important to get that in your head. They're not in all one book. They're completely different. Here's scroll Genesis. Scroll Exodus is over here, written later. You know, two separate things. And once you have, you know, 20, 24, how are you supposed to put them in order? So, so let's look at the seams. And the seams, when I say seams, is the, the portion 
of, of text in between both, at the end of one and the beginning of another. That's the scene. And you'll, you'll understand what I mean here in a second. So starting with Genesis 50, um, it says, Now Joseph stayed in Egypt in his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons, and also saw Mekur, the son of Manasseh, born on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised an oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying that God will surely take care of you. You shall carry my bones up from here. And Joseph died um, at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. Okay, so we have the end of Genesis. Well, in our Bibles, we turn a page, but they would open up a new scroll and it would say this. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came, each one with his household. All the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Oh, Joseph. Okay. Joseph died and all his brothers in that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful, they increased greatly, they multiplied, they became exceedingly mighty, so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. See, when we're reading it, like what we just did, it just, it flows, it connects. It's like, okay, Joseph died, okay, it's reminding me Joseph's dead, and now they're in Egypt, some time has passed, but we're reading it as one book. It makes total sense that these stories are connected, that these, this is a seam connecting these two scrolls um you have different words that are highlighted like joseph and his death but also in genesis it's highlighting joseph is saying hey god will bring you out of this place back to the promised land and then here in verse 8 we have the setting of the great exodus now a king rose up who didn't know joseph this is setting the story for where we're about to go but these two passages connect it flows like it never stopped. And this is an example of, the, of a seam in the Torah. Um, and it makes sense, especially if, you know, traditionally Moses wrote this. So it makes sense that the author would connect, you know, his stories together like this. But what, what happens when we look at it from several different authors? You know, c- different authors. Um, so just a reminder, real quick. Um, you know, as we're talking about how this story is unified and the Bible is unified and these scrolls are unified, um, I want to remind you of the Tanakh. You know, we looked at this last week and it's on there in your handout on, on page three. I have both of these examples here. But uh, the, the Old Testament was the Hebrew Bible. There was no New Testament, but they also had it divided into three places. And remember uh, Jesus talking about, you know, these words which I spoke with you that point to me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, that was those three little subdivisions of the Hebrew Bible, the three sections. Um, and so um, you had the Torah, which is the law, the Nevi'im, which is the prophets, the Kedavim, which is the writings. Um, and so what I want to do is look at the seams in between these sections. And, and remember, the ordering is different in our Old Testaments, and, that's, and you'll see why it's important to know this one, this ordering as well here in a minute. But we just looked at the scene between Genesis and Exodus. So let's look at the scene between Deuteronomy and Joshua. Um, and so we, we come to uh, Deuteronomy 34, um, starting in verse 1. Now Moses went up from the plains of, of Moab to Mount Nebo and to the top of Pasag, which is opposite of Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, yada, yada, yada. Um, important words, but we're skipping them for now. Um, And uh, then the Lord said to him, this is the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab. Who's the author of Deuteronomy? Moses. And he's writing his own death story. Look at this. It it actually says, um, and he, capital H, as in God, God buried him in the valley of the land of Moab, opposite of Beth Porah. But no man knows his burial place to this day. And although Moses was really old, he, he, he could still see. His vigor was still there. 
And so the sons of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab um, 30-something days, or 30 days, the days of weeping and mourning. Then they came to an end. And now Joshua, so before we get going, this is what I mean by the Bible had editors. Moses couldn't have written this. There's no indication that God said, hey, this is when you're going to die. This is how old you'll be. This is how you'll be feeling. And this is how everybody's going to react when you're dead. They're only going to mourn for you for 30 days. Then they're going to forget you. No, Um, there's no indication that that happened. That God said, hey, I'm going to be the officiant at your funeral, which sounds really cool. We get pastors these days, but he had God as the pastor at his funeral, which is kind of cool. But somebody else had to come in and write this. And this is what I mean. They're, they're creating a seam here. So let's keep reading. It says, you know, Joshua, son of, of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom. For Moses had laid his hands on him, and the sons of Israel listened to him just as they did uh, Moses. And since that time, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, for all the signs and wonders which the Lord had sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, all the servants, all the land, all the mighty power, great terror which moses performed in the sight of all israel a lot of words there but you end the story with moses's funeral and this new leader rising up and that there's no prophet that has risen up like israel we are in between the uh the torah and the nevi'im which is the prophets There is no prophet that's risen up like Moses in all of Israel. So let me show you all these prophets. Joshua, all the way through the 12 of the minor, what we call the minor prophets. You have Isaiah, Jeremiah, all included in that. And so this is kind of giving you a hint of where the story is going just in this little seam. So, you know, we go from Deuteronomy um, at the very end, you know, Moses was was awesome and nobody's risen up joshua 1 1 now it came after the death of moses the servant of the lord that the lord spoke to joshua son of nun moses servant and saying moses my servant is dead now therefore arise cross this jordan you and all this people to the land of which i am showing you um, to the sons and giving to them the sons of israel um, in every place where your soul with the, where the soul of your foot treads i have given it to you just as i spoke to moses all this land that you see. See, it again, you're reading it and it just kind of flows. It connects. These stories obviously connect. The end of Moses is talking about the death of Moses, the rise of a leader. Here's this leader now. Um, and so we're going to look at that passage that I kind of emphasized a second ago that no prophet, we'll look at that more next week, that there's no prophet that arose like Moses. But you can tell that these two seams are connecting that there is a connection, that there is some unity that has taken place in order to connect them, even though they were separate scrolls, separate authors that wrote these scrolls. Um, And then, let's see, what other passage do we have? Uh, um, Just have been with Moses, I will be with you. Be strong, courageous, for you shall give this people possession of their land, which I've shown them, I've given it to them. Be strong and courageous to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from the right to the left. This book of the law shall shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate it on day and night. You shall be careful to do all that is written within it, and it will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. I'm emphasizing that for a reason, but you don't really see what the reason is just yet. So there is a seam um, in between the the Torah and the Nevi'im, the the law and the prophets. Okay, y'all tracking with me on this understanding of seams, the the ending of one book, the beginning of the next. So I want to look at the next section in between the prophets and the Ketuvim, the writings. So you have all the prophets, and then you have Psalms, Psalms through Chronicles, according to the Tanakh layout, and so. Um, what ends the prophets is Malachi, which is what ends our Old Testaments, which is there's some really cool connections there from Malachi to the New Testament. But we're looking at the, the Tanakh, the old style way, I guess. Um, Malachi, remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances, ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, 
I'm going to send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers of the, to their children and the hearts of those children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Some powerful words there. But Malachi is ending. He, he's kind of giving some importance, some emphasis on the scriptures, the importance of knowing them, and that somebody like Elijah is coming. Well, then you turn a scroll, turn a page in the Tanakh ordering, and you have Psalms. And I pick Psalms 1 and 2, kind of just, they go together. They are, they are together, so I'm not going to read all of it. But Psalms 1 starts with, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in the law, he meditates day and night. It goes on to say that he's going to be like a tree planted you know, next to a stream. He's going to have success. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Move on to chapter 2 here. Again, they didn't have these chapters. It's all connected in their original writings. Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a, a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take their counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. And it says, but as for me... I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord, he said to me. You are my son. Today I've begotten you. Do homage, you know, kiss the son, as some translations say. Do homage to the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way because his wrath may soon be kindled. If you're looking at the handout, um, I have this stuff highlighted for you here that I don't have up here. Um, there's these obvious repeated words or ideas that are connecting these sections together, connecting these scrolls together. You know, for here, you have Malachi, again, once again, talking about the law of Moses, my servant, and the statues and ordinances of, of him, and that there's a prophet that's coming. And then you have Psalms that talks about being in the law, meditating on the scriptures, being in it, because it brings you success. It, it, it's going to guide your way. You're You're not going to you know, face some peril. And then chapter two talks about this, this one, this son figure, this, this person that does meditate on the law and that we ought to turn to because he has, it's, it's guiding you. Just these seams of scripture, just the structure is leading us somewhere, you know, and you can actually see something kind of cool. Um, that even across these sections, they're tied together. That in Deuteronomy, there's things that are repeated at the end of Malachi. and Joshua, there's things that connect to Psalms 1 and 2. There is this unity throughout the whole thing. And so just like these uh, four short passages are connecting some scrolls together and sets of scrolls together, they're doing so much more. They're beginning to outline the way the Bible is telling a story, the way the story is going. Um, what this Bible is all about. And so here's another uh, a picture of, to, uh, of the structure, of the unity of, of Scripture. Um, it, it, this is something that uh, uh, the authors really like to do. It's called hyperlinking. Um, and so we're on, I'm on page five now here. Um, and, and hyperlinking, once again, it's a word or a phrase or a theme that the author uses in order to remind you about something else, to intentionally make you recall and think about an earlier story so that you remember that story, that you upload that story to your mind or those words to your mind so that you can read this new story in light of the old one and discover something, something deeper in that. So... It's easiest if you're just, you know, you can follow the handout or you can follow me on screen. But uh, it starts here. This is, so, so what, now we're looking at the seam in between the, the last, last chapter of the Bible, the last page of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the last scroll, which is Chronicles, okay? And so we're looking at the very end of this Tanakh. And so we come to Second Chronicles 36, verse 32, it says, The first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Oh, I've read this before. And if you actually read the, from this verse to the very end of Chronicles, you're like, I've read this exact thing before. In your handout, I have it underlined. 
At this point in the Tanakh ordering, you've already read the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. And the very beginning of Ezra starts with this exact phrase. Um, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, word for word. But immediately when you read that in Chronicles, you're like, I've read that before. Let me go upload what I've read before. Okay, the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, okay, in the first year of Kings uh, of of Cyrus, king of Persia, you know, God allowed all the Israelites to go home, back to their land, back to Jerusalem, to reestablish their worship, to reestablish their their homes, to build uh, their city up. You find out in some other of the prophets that you've already read in this Tanakh ordering, they've rebuilt the temple. And so immediately when you're reading this passage in Second Chronicles, you're like, this already happened. Why am I reading it again? So you jump to Ezra, you upload all that into your head. Worship's been, been reestablished. The place of worship has been reestablished. But what, what's going on? Well, there's another hyperlink. It says, by the word of the Lord through the mouth of Jeremiah. Okay, Jeremiah, what did he have to say about all this? And immediately, um, you're, you're, you're brought to what Jeremiah said. It, you know, the, the Jewish people, they would have, they would have gotten this because this was something they were reciting all the time. They were hearing all the time. And so when they read this in Chronicles, it led them to Ezra to remind them of something in Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, you know, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word for you and bring you back to this place. This is the exile. You know, they, they were gone the whole time of Daniel, you know, 70 years. Um, and, and so he's like, look, I'm going to bring you back. Oh, I know this verse. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and hope. This is one of those verses we have plastered everywhere um, in Christian stores and clothing and necklaces and all sorts of stuff, graduation gifts, plans I have for you. God has good plans for you. Well, if you read the context of this verse, it started out with 70 years in exile. So, hey, graduate, good luck with 70 years after that. God will bring you back, you know. But that's something to remember when you're reading this um, because he's saying, you know, I have plans for you and then you will call upon me and come and pray and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me and search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes um, and I will bring you back to the place um, where uh, you, you, you came from. But again, the 70 years, okay, where did that come from? Well, again, it's a hyperlink straight into Daniel. Daniel is, is, is talking about, you know, in the first year of Darius, um, who was made king in the first year, I observed the, in the books the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to the Jeremiah. See, this is the point I'm trying to give you, is that throughout all of the Bible, there's these hyperlinks going on that are sending you all over the place so that you upload these things to your mind so that you're reading in the context, in the unity of the whole thing. So we started in Second Chronicles, okay? We started in Second Chronicles. And all of that has been uploaded to our mind now. We remembered it. These hyperlinks reminded us. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fill the, fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom, And also in writing, it says, Thus, says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. This has already happened in Ezra. We know what happened. They went up. They reestablished worship. They reestablished their homes, their city. They rebuilt their temple. But that's already happened. This is a recap. So why are we ending our Bible with these words? Let him go up. Go and see this. Go look at this. And then the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, according to the Tanakh ordering, closes. And that's it. There's nothing. Until you come to Matthew, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And you have this uh, amazing genealogy 
But it says, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. Let him go up because something amazing is happening. That guy that we've been looking for this whole time is here. And that's just the structure of the Tanakh, of the Old Testament, of the Hebrew Bible. These seams in between these sections are trying to tell you the story before you even read the story. Let him go up. This guy that Moses was talking about, somebody greater than Moses, that's, that's in the law. Joshua, somebody greater than Joshua, but, but is in the law and is reading it. Somebody like Elijah, according to Malachi, but is in, you know, he's studying, he knows the word. According to Psalm 1, this guy knows scripture. He meditates on it day and night. And the world is against him. And then we come to the end of Chronicles Let him go up and see who this is. See, this is just like the outline of Scripture. It's all been unified, even though there's so many different authors and hands and fingerprints in this. It's leading us one direction. Um, And these hyperlinks are all over the place. On your handout here, I have just a quick reference of, of how many hyperlinks. There's over 800 hyperlinks in the New Testament trying to get you to go back to the Old Testament to remember, to know, to upload what has been said, what has been done with the stories, the words, so that you can understand what Jesus is saying or the apostles are, are saying or whatever is being taught or preached or written in a greater context, in a greater unity. These hyperlinks are over, all over the place, and it's one of the greatest skills that we can form is being able to, man, read something, upload that, whatever it's referencing, upload it to our memory and read in light of that. Um, that's one of the, the ways that we can read the Bible like Jesus. Um, it gives us a fuller understanding of a word, a passage, an idea, a theme, whatever, a whole book. And this skill can really open up our understanding of Scripture and this unified message. So, really, the, one of the things I wanted to emphasize is the Bible is like a quilt. So I have a picture up here, but I also have this one uh, that Susan Tedford loaned me. Uh, I kind of told her what I was doing, and this is the one she's like, I know exactly which one you need. But the Bible is like a quilt. There's all these little stories, all these little words, these little passages, these books, these scrolls, whatever, authors. And there's a story, and there's some lessons and interpretations that we can get out of it. But it's all unified into one massive intentional work. If you can see, you know, there's these thousands of little squares. Two thousand three hundred and four mm-hmm. one-inch squares that tell a story of their own, one little little piece of cloth, but make up the whole. The Bible is just like a quilt. Everything is connected. This little thread is connected to that one, and all these threads lead one direction in Scripture and tell a unified story. Here's another uh, kind of idea. Uh, this is a photo mosaic. The Hebrew Bible is, is just like this. A bunch of little pictures that tell their own story, that, that communicate a, a single idea, but connected, they're all connected and, and tell the, the one big story, the one unified story throughout all of Scripture. And I think these two images, these two ideas, really kind of help us understand that there, there is a unity throughout Scripture that all the threads connect and they're all leading one direction, even from the structure of the Tanakh to what's actually written on the page, the content. And so on page eight, I'm moving on. Um, and there's extra stuff that you can read in all this. Cause again, we just don't have the time to just kind of explore all of it, but the, the Bible is unified in its composition and its structure and design, but it's also unified in its content. And we're going to focus more on this next week, but to get, get the idea about it, um, as I, I just want to do a small introduction to it. Um, the Bible is unified in its content, like everything that is written about um, is, is so, so for example, Genesis 1 through 11 sets the stage for the Bible, the whole thing. Genesis 1 through 11 is on repeat and recycled throughout the whole thing. 
So you start Genesis by, by God establishing us on earth as his representatives, as his reflection, as his rule, as his image-bearing people. And then we mess that up, and we suffer the consequences of it. And so God has to restore us, and he always uses some figure, some person, some anointed representative to bring people back into right relationship with him. And then we're back on top. We're with him. We're in his image bearers again. We're being his reflection and representatives and rule. And then here we go again. And that Genesis 1 through 11 sets the stage. And it's just on repeat throughout the rest of the Bible. This constant, we're here with God. We fall down to here. He, he has to discipline us. He has to restore us. But he always restores us with some anointed representative whether that's Noah, whether that's Moses, whether that's Joshua, bringing people back into right relationship with God. Um, And that's the unified theme. And you get this over and over and over again until you come to the New Testament where something something changes. There's something different now. This, this, This guy named Jesus shows up. Here's an example of the cycle in Judges. It says, at the top, Israel serves the Lord. Then Israel falls into sin and idolatry. Israel is then enslaved. Israel cries out to the Lord. God raises up a judge. Israel is delivered. And then it just keeps going over and over and over again. And that's the story of the Bible. There is this unified theme that's on repeat. And it just gets bigger and bigger, helping you understand more and more of what the big question is all about. How in the world will God restore his world? Will God restore his people? Because every time he sends somebody, they don't quite measure up. They, they, they make their own mistakes. They sin themselves. Um, and every book fits into this main theme. And again, that's going to be the focus next week. But this is the content of the Bible. Um, here's a really kind of cool idea that I've, I've recently kind of learned about. I didn't really include it in your handout here, so just a heads up. But every story has its own Adam and Eve, its own tree, and its own snake, serpent. Every story has somebody who does the wrong because they saw something good and they took it for themselves. And there was somebody already, always deceiving them. So like the story of Abraham, he goes into this place and the king says, oh, I see something good that I want. It's this woman that you're with. And then Abraham starts acting like a deceiver. Oh, it's just my sister. It's just my, and this king takes. And, and, and so you have this story of Adam and Eve taking something that's not theirs, that they saw was good. They're defining good for themselves through the means of somebody deceiving them. And there's story after story. It's a fun, you can see this a lot in Genesis. Um, I want to practice it more throughout the rest of Scripture. But uh, definitely in Genesis with Abraham, with Jacob, with Joseph, um, those stories, you can see this imagery throughout the whole thing. But anyway, the, the, the Bible is unified in its story and its, in its content, okay? Um, and Jesus saw this. He saw this unified work. He saw that it all led to something. He said himself, the New Testament answers, responds to the Old Testament saying, hey, we know what this is all leading to. It's leading to me. It's leading to Jesus. Um, and I'm fulfilling all these promises and themes. And so the, the Bible is unified in its composition, its content. And so the, the question is, how do we start reading the Bible in light of this? How do we start reading it um, as a unified work? We talked about the seams, looking at the seams in between scrolls or books, looking at the seams in between stories as well. Um, you go from Genesis 11 to 12, you can kind of connect that there's, there's this connection here or uh, these, the, you know, break it down to smaller stories. You can you know, track Abraham's story um, and you can tell it's ending one, starting another, but that they connect. So seams is a, a, an example. Um, you'll see in your practice this week, the seams in between Proverbs and Ruth. The way Proverbs ends highlights something big in Ruth. And it's a seam. It's a connection. Hyperlinks is another thing to practice. Everything in the Bible is there for a reason. It's trying to get you to connect things like a quilt, that this thread connects to this one. So jump back, upload that to your memory, and then, and then come back. Ruth starts out with, in the day of the judges, okay, what was happening in the days of the judges? 
things were whack. They were go. There was bad. It was all messed up. And this is the context of the story of Ruth. So you're kind of reading, expecting something to go bad. Um, the word Moab or Moabite, Ruth the Moabite, is mentioned unreasonable unreasonable amount of times, but it's on purpose. Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite. Okay, so what am I supposed to remember? It's a hyperlink for you to remember Israel's encounter with Moab over time. There's always a tension. There's always something weird going on. Um, and it's supposed to highlight the tension that's in Ruth. You know, Ruth, this foreigner, is coming into Israel, which is should be a, like, what's going on here kind of moment. And it's highlighting that, that God's doing something different that's in tension with our agendas or our concepts or our understandings of things sometimes. Um, patterns, repetition, uh, that kind of fits into that too. Um, but look for the themes uh, of repeated themes from Genesis 1 through 11. How do you see the repeated theme of Genesis 1 through 11 in Ruth? You might not see the whole theme of Genesis 1 through 11, but you might see part of it. But that's one of the ways to see, one of the ways to read the Bible as unified literature is seeing this repetition in these patterns. Um, another couple things I have, have here is start with the end in mind. Um, I have a quote uh, that, that God wrote the end of the Bible first. Now, he didn't actually write Revelation before he wrote Genesis, or that, that's not timeline how it worked, but he began with Jesus in mind. You know, I, I love the way Brother Mike always phrases it is Jesus has always been plan A from the beginning. Jesus was never plan B. Um, and so when we start with the end in mind, when we start with this idea of Jesus restoring everything, we're able to see him more and more throughout the Old Testament. Um, another thing, we talked about this in Sunday school today. Um, we, we just finished uh, Joshua uh, with the students. And we're like, man, wouldn't the Bible be great if it stopped here? Things were going so well with Israel, with God's people. And then you turn the page where you go to the next scroll with Judges, and things are already just going crazy. Like, what happened? Keep reading. Never stop reading. You know, I tell the youth that when we stop reading, when we don't understand something, or when we come to a place where we're just like, why in the world would God do that? That just sounds evil. When we stop reading... We have a very limited and skewed portrait of who our God is or the story that we were reading or whatever it may be. The story is not over. You keep reading. And then uh, uh, the last thing I've written here is, is kind of another tool that we're going to spend a whole session on. Again, this is going to be my favorite one. I'm so excited. Is that the Bible's meditation literature. You know, we're supposed to spend time in it, reading it again and reading it again, reflecting on it. And then reading it again, that's the way the Bible was designed, was to be meditated on. Um, And it's highly designed to tell you a story, but as you read and reread and reflect on these stories and their writing, their structure, and their messages, the Bible is going to unfold new depths of meaning and wisdom into your entire life. And so really that's the gist of, of this week is that the Bible is a unified story, a unified work but in ways that we would have never imagined. It's unified like this, but we would have never, when we're just reading this story this close, you know, we would totally miss this magnificent work of art that the Bible is. Um, And so we have to learn to read the Bible as a unified work, a unified story, that it all connects. There's something that's connecting it all, and we're going to spend more time on what that is next week so what I want to close with is just one final word that, that this is only part two of our paradigm shift of, of the way that we're trying to adopt um, these lenses on how we view and engage the Bible, um, the way we read it and, uh, and what we get out of it. It's going to transform us and grow us, but it doesn't stop with just reading the Bible. Again, just like human and divine literature, we are a partnership ourselves, but God desires to partner with you in unity for you to submit to his leadings and his desires and his will. Um, One of the most powerful things I've read on Jesus's prayer, the Lord's prayer, my kingdom come, your will be done. In order to pray that and be serious about it, that means you are surrendering your kingdom. You're asking God to invade and demolish your kingdom, your little kingdom for his kingdom to come, for his will to be done. Um, John 17, 21, again, 
Jesus was praying that may they all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, I in you, and that they may also be in us, so that the whole world may believe that you sent me. See, God desires us to be unified with him, to be unified with his church, to be a Christ-centered community, to live in communion, common union with one another. And embracing this idea with the Bible helps us do that. It helps us live together in unity when we're reading the Bible as a unified work. Um, And in the same way, God and his people have created the Bible to be unified down to even the smallest of threads. God is also working on all the threads of your life, uniting them for one common reason as well. You know, you might be familiar with Romans 8.28, for we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. Again, God is working all these things and all these scrolls as one unified work. He's doing it in our lives as well. The things that we might not feel line up is part of the tapestry of his, his work in our life, the salvation of our, of our, our world. Um, and so God is desiring to work all things together for your ultimate good, for his ultimate will, to restore you to this relationship, to this partnership um, role in life that we have. And so I hope that leaves you with some encouragement and another step closer to reading the Bible like Jesus, reading it as a unified work. This prepares us for next week. Um, all these things connect, but this really prepares us next week for reading the Bible as messianic literature, um, that it's all about this Messiah figure, this anointed one from page one, plan A from the Bible. It's all about this figure. And so that's what we're going to dive into next week. And so let me pray, and then we have some time um, to just talk a little bit, or you can go, or, or whatever you need to do, and I'll hand out the practice in just a moment. So once again, God, just thank you for the ways that you're working in our life, that you are working all things for your, your goodness and your will and, and, and for our ultimate goodness. But God, as we read Scripture, may we see how unified it is. That even the structure of it, the design, the composition is unified in its story. It's unified in telling one story that's leading to something, to somebody named Jesus. And that's just the structure, not even the words, God. So God, help us to read it in a unified way to understand it all connects to maybe start practicing some of these things that we've learned, whether it's these seams or these hyperlinks or these patterns of repetition to pick up on some of these things and read the Bible in that kind of light and that kind of context. So again, may this study and may your scripture lead us to Jesus and through that relationship be given the wisdom to man live to be witnesses to this world so god we just thank you man for your word and for who you are and it's in your name that we pray lord amen